time for another episode of Star Wars All In, the show that goes into the places, people, things, and concepts of that galaxy far, far away. Hi, my name is Mac, and I am your Coruscant tour guide for this episode, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Ross. Oh, Mac, does it feel good to be a director on the Jungle Cruise? If you just keep your arms inside the vehicle at all times, it's going to be a great ride, and everyone's going to have fun. <laughs> so, Mac... We have, I, I just want to jump right in because we have three great topics today, okay? We are going to start out by talking about the lightsabers of the sequel trilogy. Oh, and there's there's a lot to talk I about. I can't believe how great they are. I just want to say it. I'll probably say it again later, but great on you, Lucasfilm. You have designed some fantastic lightsabers for the sequel trilogy. We're going to spend about a half an hour talking about how yes. great they are. Yes, we will. And, and then the next topic, we're going to go into the most famous Doug Podracer of all time. We're going to talk about Sebulba. No, no. What? That's not right. We're not going to no, talk no. about Sebulba. Well, we're going to talk about the Bulba. Oh, I thought you just had a typo on the... Well, don't worry, Mac. I have all the information on the Bulba you'll need. <laughs> Good, because I'm not prepped for that. Stick around. Save your Sebulba notes for another time. Okay. Stick around for topic two, everyone, where I teach Mac and apparently everybody else about the Bulba. And we'll spend about 10 minutes on that. Yep. I would say so. That probably sounds about right. And uh, then what we're going to do is... Uh, a tiny planet. A tiny planet. A tiny little niche in the Star Wars galaxy that we don't see a whole lot of. Uh, basically, when we get to the end, end um, for however long it takes, about 30 minutes, I'm going to gush about my favorite Star Wars character, the planet Coruscant. And boy, what a planet it is. We are going to talk all about that beautiful city planet. Coruscant. I can't wait. You know what? We've got too much good stuff. Let's just start going. We're going to start right after this. Master Windu, how pleasant of you to join us. This party's over. Brave, but uh, foolish, my old Jedi friend. Ah, the sound of the lightsaber igniting. Probably one of the most iconic movie sounds of all time. But not every saber sounds like that, because when we look at the sequel trilogy, we get a lot of different flavors of lightsabers than we had up to now. And some of them are, well, let's just say more uh, energetic Unique. or erratic. Erratic yeah, is a good way to put it. Uh, cracked, as one might say. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, so today we are talking about lightsabers of the sequel trilogy. This is a topic Mac and I have wanted to do since the beginning of the podcast, yep. and we had to wait for the sequel trilogy to be over, so and now could, it is! Because we can cover all of them now. And it's a good thing we waited, because there are two lightsabers that come in the last installment. That are kind of important. Uh-huh. Uh, but before we get to those, let's go chronologically here. Let's sure. start out with the first lightsaber we see that's new in the sequel trilogy. Not only the first lightsaber we see new in episode seven, the force awakens, but the first new lightsaber we saw in the marketing material. Yep. The first new lightsaber we saw in a trailer. Oh, that's right. It was it in, really it was introduced in us to this new era of star Wars. And that is Kylo Ren's 
cross guard lightsaber. Yeah. I was going to say, that's right. That was in like the Black Friday, the original. Yeah, the original that shot from behind that isn't in the movie of him <laughs> igniting it. Yeah. It's so um, good. Okay. So here's what I want to say. Shoot. This lightsaber is awesome. I think every <laughs> new lightsaber we get in the sequel trilogy is great. I think every single one of them look gorgeous. I think every single one of them is one I would want and want to use and want to own. Every single one of them I want to buy from Batu. Uh, I, I just <laughs> I want that scrap metal. Give me these sabers. They're all fantastic. So let's start with the murdered out black one that is Kylo Ren's. It's so awesome. You you don't even understand. It's so awesome. It's so black. Uh, it's so, so red. It is. It is a great example of the edgelord that is Kylo Ren when we first meet him, of dressed all in black, trying to be the biggest Vader wannabe. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he's got an evil lightsaber that's eviler than any evil lightsaber's ever been. Uh-huh. Between you have, again, I mean, everyone lost their mind at the cross guards, right? Because Very much so, because it was we, new. Well, we'd had a double-bladed lightsaber, but we never had a tri-bladed lightsaber. And I mean, I remember the first meme of Force Awakens is like the the Swiss Army knife thing of like it just keeps growing new and more blades and more blades and more blades because it had been a joke in like Legends of we had seen a a three bladed lightsaber in Legends at one point, which was basically like Darth Vader or uh, Darth Maul's staff, but with a single like forty five degree angle off the axis uh, cross guard. And mm -hmm. that felt like them trying to excuse a three-bladed lightsaber. Whereas this seemed like, oh, well, that makes total sense. Just make it like a broadsword. That makes yeah. way more sense. Absolutely. Now, it is not only unique, as you're saying, in the broadsword sense, right, of yeah. this thing that is this new design, but its sound design mm -hmm. is also new and unique, right? When you hear it ignite, it's got that crackle, that hiss, that uh, a traditional lightsaber doesn't have. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like a car with a bad carburetor because mm -hmm. that that melodic, um, that very soothing hum yeah. that comes from the lightsaber is interrupted on this because it like sputters and yeah. spurts and Especially sparks. Especially as he swings it through the air. Yeah. You know, when he ignites it there on uh, Starkiller Base. And even earlier, you know, we see it, but when he brings it up and swings it down on Lorsan Santeca, yep. and then when he ignites it and he's, you know, yelling at Finn, traitor, and he's swinging it around, and you hear that crackling going through the air, it is awesome. I mean, it is rad. It is a really cool lightsaber. It, it's a great example of what I think they did a really good job of in this is taking the concept of... Uh, hey, we can build lightsabers from scratch because it's, you know, 2015. So rather than just using whatever camera camera flash bodies we have around, we're going to build the lightsabers to be very specific to the characters. Yes. We saw that with like Luke's was in episode six was much more. This is what Luke would have designed as an extension of himself kind yeah. of thing. Right. Yeah. And it homages Obi-Wan's lightsaber while mm -hmm. still being new and unique to him. And, and in the case of Kylo Ren, it's sold on the idea of this is literally him. It's erratic. It's mm -hmm. very powerful. Mm -hmm. it, it's overdone. Mm -hmm. And the hilt is cracked oh, and broken man, and yeah. pieced together, it's too. It's got that red wire that runs up the side of it, connecting it from base to stern. Um, but it's also got the thing I love the most about it, I think. And this is going to come back up when we talk about Ben's lightsaber, which is where this lightsaber starts later. Um but it's got this base to it, okay, mm -hmm. the hilt of it, like on the very base. It's got like a gap 
Like yeah. you can see through it a little bit. And it's like this, this, um, this almost like this capped end that looks like it was stuck on. Yeah, to kind of hold it together. Yeah, I really, really can't stress enough how much I think that hilt looks great. Well, I think it also helps by putting that big, thick end cap at the end. It gives a little bit of the idea of like a pommel. Yes. And helps, again, balance that thing so it looks more like a medieval broadsword. Yes. And while it is a black lightsaber, it's scratched, it's beat up. Where the emitters are, where the side blades come out, they look like the black paint has worn away. And now it's silver and gold, and it's kind of, you know, the colors are changing based on where the where the, where the the metal has been overheated well, and, you know. And I think very dramatically, like, much like the story of the picture of Dorian Gray, where this person does all these evil things and the painting of them is what's taking the wear and tear and the crack and the break. Mm -hmm. This lightsaber is previewing Kylo Ren's internal fight that at the beginning of the movie, he seems really put together. He's wrapped real tightly in this black garb and this really ornate mask. And by the end, his face is like cut and we are seeing just how fractured and split personality this person is. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. I think you're right when you say his lightsaber really represents who he is. Yeah, and now, it's a preview of that because you see the yeah. you see the broken nature of his saber before yeah. you see him as broken. And we spend most of The Last Jedi examining just how broken it is. And by the rise of the Skywalker, rise of the Skywalker, I know, I'll get it right someday. Uh, he's back in his mask and his mask is literally like put back together because yeah. he's really not all together mm-hmm. again. He's never all together again <laughs> after his scar at the end of Circular Base. Now, Kylo Ren's lightsaber, though, we later learn, does get built off of Ben Solo's lightsaber. Oh, it does. Yes. That is canon. I mean, that we all is, yes. Yes, but we weren't sure. So uh, it's a uh, it's Ben's lightsaber that has essentially been modified, rebuilt, to be... Uh, well, a different saber <laughs> to be a saber of evil instead of a saber of good. Well, he also now, has to go bleed that crystal. Yes. Now we don't see uh, Ben's lightsaber until Episode Eight, The Last Jedi. Right. So we don't, and, and even then, we're only partially sure. It's not till later on blue. that it's confirmed. But it's blue. <laughs> it's silver. But it's got that same hilt. That same, mm-hmm. the bottom of the hilt. That we were talking about, that same cap that looks like it's stuck on the end. Yeah. That's what really makes it stand out. That and the emitter right out of the top. It's yeah. kind of a smaller hole. Um Yeah, it's, it's more of just like a like a font. Yeah, like it's not it doesn't really have yeah. as much of a, a body or housing to the emitter. This lightsaber is I want it. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> I want it. I think Ben Solo's lightsaber and in turn Kylo Ren's lightsaber is one of the best designs I've seen in a long time. You want to know why I like it? What's that? Because it looks like you could hold it without the button getting in the way, without the activator switch. Oh, that's true. Like Vader's lightsaber and even Luke's and Obi-Wan's. You know, it's it's right there in the middle. It's like, how do you hold it without accidentally turning it off? Well, I mean, in Vader's or Anakin's case, I definitely feel that because it's on that elevated box Having having examples of those because that's yeah. my collecting thing is buying lightsabers. Yeah. Um, I think that makes sense. But like when you look at like just the red single button on like the episode one lightsabers, yeah. you're like, does it have like a safety catch? But Do those you have to like are at least higher it? up. Okay, those are higher up. Yeah. So when I think of like think of Vader's lightsaber, I think is the perfect example, right? Yeah. That button is right where that second hand should go. 
Like if you're holding, like you can well, hold it at the top. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I guess it's where the second hand. Yeah, that, that switch, I guess, is right where your second hand would the be. The bottom hand. The yeah. hand that's lower on the lightsaber is what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So like okay. the top hand on, say, using Vader's saber as an example, plenty of room. Yes. As soon as you grab it by the bottom, though, that switch is right in the middle. Yeah, it is. It's right in the middle of the body. It's almost like it's the hot shoe connector for a flash bulb. <laughs> yes, it's almost like it is. It's almost like that. <laughs> uh, so it, it's interesting, you know, when you think about this design of some of these new sabers, and that was kind of my point here with Ben's and Kylo's, is yeah. the ignition switches are in more reasonable places, it seems. Well, like I said, I think the prop department was a lot more thoughtful about them as the movies went on. Because like I said, in 77, you're you're on a budget film and you're just trying to make with what you can and you made something that looked cool. You didn't really think about it as like, well, you know, how does it, it work as a weapon? Yeah, how to, yeah. how, um, and, and lightsabers evolved. We used to think lightsabers were like super duper heavy. That's why like, <laughs> you know, Obi-Wan and Vader are just like, oh, just wrestling with these things, yeah. right? And now we, we think of them as the weight of a prop replica. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I will, with caveat, Ben Solo's feels a little bit more weighty. It feels it like. It looks heavy. Yeah. It looks like a heavy saber, Especially doesn't it? when we see in the in episode nine, when like that opening sequence, like when he's bringing that down on people, it's more like an ax swing than a sword. Oh yeah. Like it's he's ferocious. It's great. Uh, so we're starting to see a little bit of Ben Saber now in the Rise of Kylo Ren comics. The first two issues are out. Okay. Highly recommend them. I've read them both. I have copies of both. Uh, both are great. So if you haven't checked those out, guys, check them out. They're fantastic. Um, I want to say also one thing that is perfect example of people in canon fixing things that go wrong. Uh, we call it the cross-grade lightsaber. That is not what those are. <laughs> they are vents. Yeah. They are vents for the amount of energy coming off of his cracked crystal that it can't all go down the central emitter. It has yeah. to leech some of it off mm -hmm. because um, they wouldn't work. The emitters stick out like an inch. A lightsaber would cut through that. Then your hand, like, it wouldn't actually work as a cross guard. Yeah. You can use them to stab someone, but not as much for defense. And in fact, I can't wait for home video because I'm pretty much sure we see how they don't work in that fight between Kylo and Rey. Mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty sure she she drives her blade. It runs down along the lightsaber, and I don't I don't know if it gets far enough to hit the emitter, so I'm staying mm, one step back okay. from that because that's something I'm going to have to frame by frame like on my you know Blu-ray to figure out. Yeah. But um, it is definitely like a, mis a misnomer to call them guards. Now, now, here's the only thing I'll say about that, though. We do see him use them for defense purposes in the throne room fight in episode eight. He does use them to catch some of those Praetorian guard weapons. Yes, but what I'm trying to say is I think of those if a lightsaber is a cohesive blade, right? This this object. Those little things, I think, are radically flipping between being like just fire mm -hmm. and that coalition that is a lightsaber blade. I'm, I'm just yeah. trying to say like, I don't believe he designed them for that purpose. No, even if he's trained himself no, no, to no, use no. them. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't way. think they were designed for that purpose. I Cause otherwise you would yeah. just make them holes on the side so that yeah. that way they were blade at all times. Yeah. But it, they look cool. They do. Even if they don't make sense, they look cool. 
Just like most things in Star Wars, right? Yeah. No, and, and you know what? Since Maz never told us how we found the Skywalker blade, someone could go out there with a submarine and get that lightsaber. It doesn't have to leave canon. Well, speaking of the Skywalker saber, that's in all three of these sequel movies, so let's yes. talk about it. Uh, it is given to Rey by... Well, attempted to give to Rey by Maz, but then given to Finn, who then Rey uses it to defeat kylo if my timeline is correct in my head uh, right. but basically it's the anakin skywalker saber that luke is gifted at the beginning of a new hope yep. and then loses at the hand of vader in empire strikes back only to be delivered to ray later now the interesting thing about this saber <laughs> is we've seen saber it a lost. whole lot yes <laughs> we've seen it a whole lot this is a saber we've seen a bunch of times before so we're definitely used to it well again it's um, it's, it's in um, it's in six of the nine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> it is a little deified in this, in this sequel trilogy, which I was sort of surprised by, you know, it, it never felt to me, maybe, maybe this is just a personal thing, mm -hmm. but to me, it, the lightsabers felt like a tool, you know, the lightsaber was not this, it's inherently connected well, to this individual. Well, perfect example of this is it's an extension of your body. It is the samurai sword. It is like, you know, without your sword, you were useless with, you know, your sword without you, you were useless kind of yeah. thing. Like that was very much. But like samurai swords, you replace your sword from time to time. It yeah. is a blade. You must maintain it and keep it. But part of maintaining and keeping it is realizing when the steel is gone and you get a new sword. Yeah. Um. And I thought it was fun because I think we deified it in the original trilogy because, oh, look at this ornate box he's bringing out of and He's giving it to Luke. His father wanted him to have his sword. This is so important. And then that kid loses it. That idiot. He loses <laughs> it. He doesn't even go back to look for it. Right? Like, and that felt like a tragedy when we lose the Skywalker saber in, in Empire. Right? Yeah. Like, Luke's not a Jedi anymore. He doesn't have a lightsaber. Who knew you could build one? Right? <laughs> not in 80. Um, and then episode two really sells the point of like, oh, when we say it's Anakin's lightsaber, it's the last one he happened to have. Yeah. He has lost lots of lightsabers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yes. Um, so again, like you said, this is like Han Solo's blaster. Yes, it's his blaster, but if he needs to, he'll pick up a stormtrooper rifle. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need to mm -hmm. only use that blaster. And we see that in episode two as well, as yeah. when Anakin and Obi-Wan are freed and they're thrown lightsabers that aren't theirs. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. actually I have nothing to add. Cause yes, I agree with everything you just said. Well, back to Kyber yeah. crystals. It's, it's the Harry Potter rules. Yeah. Any wizard or witch can use anyone's wand, but you'll never get the best magic without your own. Yeah. Okay. We also have Luke Skywalker's saber. Yes. In these films. Uh, however, briefly, uh, in episode eight, we see his green blade come out. Yeah. We, we see the, the ignition of that familiar green blade out of yeah. that cool little, like... Yeah, my favorite lightsaber still, although I'll tell you there are two, one of them being Ben Solo's, another we'll talk about here in a minute, <laughs> that are uh, making a push for my favorite lightsabers now. But that one still, because it's green and the other two are blue, uh, is still my favorite. <laughs> uh, but it's anyway, it's it's a great lightsaber. My only my only thing is I just wish we would have seen it a little bit more. Well, you definitely get the impression and it's confirmed in nine of like part of giving up on all of this is putting yeah. the lightsaber yeah. away and putting it in a nice ornate yeah. box that I'll leave yeah. until someone worthy yeah. of it would come for it. And to be fair, we do see it briefly in episode nine. We do. We do get to see Luke use it. 
Uh, and that's great. And speaking of seeing Luke use it in episode nine, in that same scene, we also learn of Leia's lightsaber. Yeah, we First do. time we're seeing. Now, Leia's lightsaber in Legends was very different from this. It was a little bit skinnier. It was a little bit longer. It was um, a little bit sleeker, more Naboo. Uh, less... Yeah, more more yeah Padme and stuff. But I mean, yeah. also it was also around for all. It was very early. I think yes. that was like. I mean, that's pretty early in canon when we started having comic books that were depicting it and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in episode nine, now we get a new canonical lightsaber for Leia, and this design, boy. As soon as I can buy this one from Galaxy's Edge, <laughs> I am going to get this scrap metal. So it has some elements of everything. It has some elements of Luke's lightsaber. Uh, the emitter at the top has a very skinny neck, yes. just like Luke's, except it's got like double layered. It, yeah. It's got like two levels of it. Two like focusing crystals mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, because they look like um, they look like calderas, like what like the Olympic torch is. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, the, yep. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, no, that's good. You keep, please keep going. You have well, any more Olympic torch? Well, the thing about it, about it that's interesting is one of the things that makes the episode six Luke Saber and the Leia Saber probably like a little bit frustrating to people who want to make proper articles of it is it reminds you it's a laser sword. The neck of that thing can't yeah. fit a lightsaber polycarbonate blade that fits in it. In fact, the one they sell at Galaxy's Edge for Luke's episode six comes with another head yeah. that you unscrew and put mm-hmm. it in there so it can actually hold the and blade. I'm guessing that's why we haven't gotten Leia's. One of the reasons we haven't gotten Leia's because they'll, they'll have to they'll have to do yeah. the same thing. It'll have right. to have two machined ends, right. one for show, right. so it's as prop accurate as yeah. you can get, and one for when it's ignitable. And I'm down with that. I'll still buy. It. I'm down. They they added the Ben Solo and the Reforged Skywalker saber. Oh, we'll get to that in so a second. We'll get yeah. you know. Uh, but then Leia's saber also has a really great handle because it's got sort of this bronze base wrapped yep. in silver, and it's just this nice, elegant looking saber. But it's got this cool hand grip where it's almost like it's indented. So mm-hmm. it's got like a little bit of grip above and below where your hand rests, and then it's kind of there to hold your hand center. It's the one that looks the most practical to me for some reason out of all the sabers. Well, I think the biggest thing is, like you said, it looks like a hand grip that's designed that if your hand slips a little bit, like it'll catch on the bottom and the top, like that you're less likely to drop this thing. Um, And it and it has some cues from lightsabers we've seen before. Mace Windu's and Lord Sidious's have that sort of like more jewelry quality like metal like that yes. shinier more elegant uh mix of golds and mm-hmm. silvers palpatines as well yeah very ornate uh, i love it i think it's a gorgeous design i think it suits leia perfectly yeah i uh i think it's one of the things that episode nine nails is just giving me a lightsaber that at, at a glance i believe this is hers and again, it's again that prop design of making it an extension of that yes. person. Yes. Um, which which brings us to like, you know, the next one in the in the lineup, which is the reforged saber, which is Ray's first mm-hmm. saber. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. had the Skywalker saber, but she kind of makes it her own when she heals mm-hmm. it between episode mm-hmm. eight and nine. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I like about it is it now mirrors Ben's. It's two halves put back together again. Right. Um, and that's pretty interesting. And oh, it- yeah. That's a really interesting point is, you know, Ben and her are both using these sabers that are, shall we say, not pristine. Well, they're 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 like 
they're kind of hand-me-downs and they're you know like yeah. ben's lightsaber was ben's lightsaber and he stitched it and forged it into kylo ren's yeah. right same with like ray ray is starting to embrace her destiny of becoming a jedi and becoming the skywalker legacy but she's also clinging to the way it looked it, it it's not that different from the original skywalker blade like the bottom half has a, a different more almost like boxy kind of quality to it um, but the biggest thing about it is it doesn't look as it looks repaired. It yeah. looks like she repaired it. And I feel that that is again, as the sequel trilogy did of using this, the blades to teach the characters, it is her trying to live up to a legacy that she's not really ready to live up to. Cause if she was, she would have done Luke in episode six. She would have made her own off screen between eight and nine with the guts of that blade. And especially when we know Leia forged her own lightsaber, it's not like someone wasn't there to teach her. You get the impression she fixed this blade because she thinks it's important to fix this blade that I'm not worthy of having my own yet. You know, I'm not worthy mm -hmm. of that. I'm not ready to, again, I'm constantly being trying to ignore the hero's journey, the call to action. You know, she's she's timid by nature. Yeah, um, I agree. Yes. And uh, and I think that's reflected in that blade. And just like, you know, how, um, you know, Kylo's blade in the end isn't his and he throws it away and he ends up with the one he's supposed to have, mm -hmm. um, which also uh, now I'm just following that that. I thought the stuff of Ray when I first saw the reforged lightsaber, but I'm like, yeah, it makes sense that Ben receives his grandfather's lightsaber now that it's been repaired, mm -hmm. that the broken nature of what Kylo Ren was is finally healed and Ben Solo can, can come back to being Ben Solo yeah. Skywalker. Yeah. Um, wow. But this leads to Max' favorite lightsaber in canon. Uh, and it is... Look at that. We have to redo a topic finally. Remember when we did episode three? <laughs> we we promised to... each other we wouldn't revisit topics for a year. But when we get to We're it. We're close. We're close. We're going to have to redo our favorite saber. <laughs> like halfway uh, there. That's crazy. Um, anyway. Um, so we're talking about Ray's lightsaber. Ray's lightsaber, which um, the first thing I want to say, much like you go, uh, Luke's lightsaber is cool. Um, I found things I really like about it. Found? Well, it was green. I was in love with it when it was green. And then I found other things to like about it. <laughs> that was kind of uh, raised because when I was a kid growing up with like playing games like Jedi Knight 2, where you could play, play, um, you know, characters and stuff. One of the things that was kind of weird to me was my favorite color growing up was red. Mm -hmm. But I can't have a red lightsaber because that's the bad guy. So despite <laughs> me owning Darth Vader's lightsaber based on the color alone, um, when I was, you know, in my imagination playing pretend, like, mm -hmm. my blade was, like, white or yellow, yeah. which was what you thought, like, they looked like in New Hope to the point that, I didn't know it at the time, but Obi-Wan's lightsaber <laughs> was yellow in the action figure because it was so pale they didn't realize it was supposed to be blue. And it's just been something that's been in the background of canon. I mean, something that was uh, big was it was one of the choosable colors for... Um, uh, Jedi Knight, because uh, there's a couple characters there that use a yellow lightsaber. Um, there's also, it was big in KOTOR, Knights of the Old Republic. Yeah, that was the first time I remember hearing about or seeing yellow sabers. And it was, um, 
it was really nice. And I just got in my head of like, well, if I was a Jedi, I'd have a yellow blade because while I like blue for the most part, I'm like, blue's not really my color. Like yeah. my color would be yellow. And yeah. it was kind of one of those things of like, and hey, we're never going to see like a film version <laughs> of that. And for no reason that they had to do, <laughs> hers is yellow. Hers is yellow. I mean, before that, we saw the temple guards, right? Is that the only time so in Star in, Wars canon we've seen yellow? Uh, especially current, yes. There Again, they kicked around legends, but like in canon, yes, when we see the temple guards, and that kind of makes it go weird because the temple guards are in this weird place. Are they actually there or not in most of their occurrences in Rebels? Like, are they apparitions or are they visions or yeah. are they actually there? Yeah. Um, and that was the first yellow lightsaber one could really buy from Star Wars 2 was the Temple Guard at um, Galaxy's Edge. Hmm, yeah. Another great lightsaber design, by the way. And the first thing I owned from Galaxy's Edge was um, I, <laughs> our first friend went to go get stuff. I'm like, bring me back a yellow crystal. <laughs> Why? Because yellow is my crystal color. And when I get a lightsaber, it's going to be yeah. yellow. <laughs> it has to be. Um. So it was... An absolute elation, that final scene when she <laughs> ignites it, especially because her blade is so cool. Um, we still need, like, better pictures of it because there's a lot of questions on how long it is. So and... it's funny you ask okay. because I was attempting to pull it up while you were speaking. Yeah. Because Ray's lightsaber does a couple of things really cool that we 100% sure we see on film. Yes. One, it's yellow. Yeah. Two, it's this awesome black like matte handle and the yeah. igniter switch is sweet because it's kind of like a fidget spinner. Yeah. It's, it is, it's a clickable to the side. It yes. rotates around the body. Of, and it also has that cool little detail. Like it flashes blue and green, right? As it lights up well, so, right on the handle. Which so a is lot cool. of people were thinking of like, Oh, well she took like Luke's crystal and she made it with Ben because blue and red equal yellow. And I'm like, in no model of color theory does blue and red equal yellow. Well, she At doesn't best it equals green. But what I was well, going to say Where is, does that come from? Because she well, doesn't have Ben's crystal. No, people the, were saying that? People were saying that because they, they, they couldn't handle that she just built a lightsaber completely on her own. And like Luke, found a crystal. Like somewhere okay. along the way, they yeah. didn't need the old ones. Yeah. They found their own. And it was because, and I really watched for it the second time. Her admitter has like a basket around it, yeah. like a caged basket, which is from her staff because it is, if not made from her staff, is made in the same yeah, mold style, as her staff. For sure, yeah. And what I think you're seeing there is you're seeing the blue, which in all of Star Wars, blue always means electricity, ion, mm -hmm. electricity, mm -hmm. um, unless it's plasma electricity and then it's purple. But you see the blue underneath there. And I think what you're seeing is you're seeing an exposed emitter. You see the energy that's going from the power cell inside mm -hmm. them to up through the crystal and then hitting the focusing crystal at the very top, right? So what I think yeah. you see is you see hers, like you see the spark plug, if you will, yeah. turning it on. Okay. And I think that's where that blue is inside that cage. But people saw that and because that scene is so fast. Yes. I think after first people's viewings, people are like, oh, it's blue, then it turns yellow. There must be some reason for that. And I think... When I saw it the second time, it very much is... No, it's just the energy of it sparking on. Yeah, it's just an effect of the saber itself. Something that's unique to it. Yep. Now, one of the things I do want to talk about is the length of the saber. Yeah. So, we see it a few times. We see it when she goes to turn it on. 
Obviously, that's but, where you get that close up in the switch. Yeah, and you can, for a very brief moment, see the bottom of it. And it doesn't look very long there. Okay. Yeah. Now, it very much does look like the bottom could be a blade. I don't think that's the route they're going. I think it yeah. is a single-bladed saber. But it's funny. When it's on her belt, it looks longer, longer. than yeah. when she's holding it in her hand. And so I'm curious, was there a prop change? Like, it's not Darth Maul long, but it looks longer than a standard hilt. Well, and and to me, like, okay, total fan theory. I would love for it to be, like, it is her staff. Like, she can click it on and make it into a force pike if she needs, you know, a light pike if she needs. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, I think all it's supposed to imply is probably the prop that's made of rubber, um, when yeah. she slides down and does a stunt was probably molded before they really perfectly nailed down what they want to do because that shot of her turning it on that could have been made a month before the movie released right there's nothing there that isn't something you could have done in in a pickup shot right. later on in the special right. effects department right. so my guess is they made the prop for as much as the art department had decided it was going to be and then by the time they really by the time she turns it on and that's an effect yeah. shot that they've had to make, my suspicion is Disney <laughs> was talking about like, well, here's how we're planning to build it for Galaxy's Edge. So could you make it look more like the thing we can actually build? It'll, I mean, I guess we'll know when they eventually start selling it at Batu. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I'm positive it's going to be it's a just single production. Yeah. I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any yeah. purposeful inconsistencies yeah. because when she's holding it, I mean, her one hand she's holding it with when she ignites it yeah. fills almost the entire handle. It feels like it is, it is. Yeah. It's maybe a hair shorter than like yeah. the, the, it's maybe like Qui-Gon length. Mm-hmm. Like you can put two hands on it, but they're, they're really tight. They're tight together. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I just think we need to say bravo Lucasfilm because sequel oh, trilogy yeah. lightsabers. I, I mean, basically Best we got in the business. four new lightsabers, right? Kylo at slash Ben. So one or two, depending on how I'm going to count that as two. No, count as two because we definitely see Ben's saber. You can't pick any details out of that flashback, but we know there's a blue blade and it's attached to something. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then we have, uh, you could see it pretty well when it's on the table if you're pausing it. But anyway, we have Leia saber <laughs> and we have Ray saber. Yes. Right. Holy crap, are they all great? I love yep. every single one of them. Um, I, I truly think that Leia's especially, I just find so gorgeous and perfect. Sure. Uh, Ray's is so cool. I just want to see more of it. Canon lightsaber. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I think we're not counting XR Kuhn, who's super not canon at the Well, he's sort of canon at the moment. <laughs> Other um, than the fact Ray's lightsaber is bl- like all black, and don't be wrong, I think it looks awesome. It's very much like the lightsaber I would want. Uh, but just there's something about Leia's saber and then Ben's. I think the thing I like about Ben's is that it's all one color. Mm-hmm. It's just that silver. It's like that matte silver, kind yeah. of like an aluminum silver Apple watch. Gotcha. It's not shiny. It's not reflective like a lot of lightsabers. It's this matte silver and I really, really like it. Yeah. No. Um, bravo. Yeah. Bravo, Lucasfilm. Beautiful, beautiful lightsaber design in the sequel trilogy. I am in love with all of them. And the last thing I'll say, bravo, Disney. I'm glad 
that it is only a matter of time before I can buy all of these lightsabers. There's At a no very uni- reasonable price. There's no universe where I can't buy Ray's lightsaber like a year or two from now. Yeah. Like by the time you get exciting. to celebration, the end of this year, you'll oh, be f- you'll be buying it. I'm hoping it's going to be there, yeah. but. You know, similar to what you said about the um, Leia's and trying to figure out maybe the end. There might be a thing of maybe they want it to have that little blue spark mm-hmm. in there, in which case that will be harder. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's mm-hmm. why it's not out because they were fast. Like the day episode nine came out, they were starting to roll out some of the new sabers like the Reforged came out. I think that day. The Reforged and Benz. They put Benz. them out right yep. away, right away, which is why I'm. I mean, we've got to get Leia's. We've got we to. The, the reason we don't have Leia's and Ray's by now is because those maybe weren't designed and added in the film until later on. Well, we right. knew what Ben's lightsaber looked like from episode eight. And we knew it. The, the reforged one, I mean. The practical prop was something yeah. you go build something. So like you said, give it six months to a year and we'll probably have those other two as they figure out the manufacturing for them. So definitely going to have to have you pick up Ben's for me while you're at, uh, at Galaxy's <laughs> Edge. Uh, so I can't wait for you to ship that back to me. Thank you in advance. You're welcome. Uh, and then if they have Leia's by then, who knows? Maybe I'll be getting two. Ah. If I have to choose, well, though, I'll d- ooh, I'll d- that's going to be tough. I definitely will, because I'm going to make my own, and I'm totally buying Ray's. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Disney, and uh, sequel trilogy. Great a- lightsabers. Great lightsabers. A plus on the lightsabers. All right. Let's move on to another, uh, admittedly, big topic, um, and we're going to come right <laughs> back to that. Huge, larger-than-life topic coming up right after the break. Could you imagine if Han had left Chewie down in that pit? My God, no. No, no, right? Han needed to rescue Chewie to feel fulfilled in his life. Well, there's another thing I want to talk to you about when it comes to rescuing, and that's shelter pets. Mm. Every shelter pet is unique. Some love a game of fetch. Others love a good snuggle on the couch. Chewie loves Robin trains. There's one thing, though, that they all have in common, and that's their all-pure love. You know, right now, millions of pets are in shelters and rescues across the country waiting to be adopted. Did you know that only 44% of dogs and only 47% of cats in America come from animal shelters and rescue groups? You know what's interesting, Mac, is we adopted our two cats. And I'll tell you, these two cats, we've had them about five years now. They were about five when we adopted them. They're about 10 now. They have been the best thing. They have their own little Star Wars collars. It's great. My two cats, Peach and Daisy, also came from a shelter, and I wouldn't have it any other way. If you're thinking about getting a pet this holiday season, make sure to visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, Maddie's Fund, and the Humane Society of the United States. Mac, what if I told you that we are going to talk about the squirrel of the Star Wars universe? You know, when I looked at the list here, I thought you meant Sebulba and it was a typo. (laughs) I didn't. It was not. In fact, we are talking about Bulbas. Okay, so they are the squirrels of the Star Wars universe. Yes. So what movie are they in? So they're not in a movie. Uh, What game are they in? They are not in a game. Uh, The Clone Wars. Nope. Rebels? Nope. Comic book? 
Close. Okay. Book book? I'll give you it. I yes. They are in a young adult Star Wars book called Rebel Rising. Okay. Uh, written by Beth Revis. Okay. okay. Now, if you're not familiar with Rebel Rising, this is the novel that gives you the backstory of Jin Erso and Sagarera. It basically picks up when that bunker door opens on uh on oh, uh, when, when when Jin is a child and Saw's coming to rescue her after her parents are killed. Well, killed slash captured. Uh basically the book starts there mm-hmm. and about halfway through the book after spoilers for a three-year-old young adult canon Star Wars novel uh, <laughs> about halfway through the book after Saw has essentially left Jin, like abandoned her and left her to basically go on and, uh, you know, live her life. Yeah. She meets this family who take her in and uh, basically take her to their home world where for about a year she just kind of lives a normal life. That's and nice. throughout that year, it's her kind of learning to mellow out and not be this on edge child soldier. soldier. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the animals that she encounters um is called the bulba. Okay. Okay, the bulba. Now, the bulba is only <laughs> in about two and a half pages of this book. It's very <laughs> okay. minimal. Okay. But I wanted to talk about it. That would be for the simple fact that it really goes into um the symbiotic relationship. Something we hear about in Star Wars in Episode One. So these these rodents are uh, from the planet Skull, S K U H L School Skull Skull Skull. Let's call it that. So they are described as tiny and brown, no bigger than your hand, a mouse-like w- animal with pale brown fur, a tiny pink twitching nose, big black eyes, and a cute furrow to its brow that makes it look comically worried. <laughs> All right. It's got a long tail That's covered cute. in fine fur that ends in a tuff, and it can stand on its hind legs. It's also courageous. That sounds like a squirrel to you, doesn't it? That's uh, how I'm picturing it. A squ- I would say a squirrel, other than it sounds like it's got like a little bit more of a bobtail. It's got a little more of like a ball at the very end. Like the when she says it ends yeah, in a tuft. A tuft. I, I think of it as like finer fur, like smaller than squirrel, but ending in a squirrel's volume of, yes. of fur. I like it. So a space squirrel. Yeah, just which admittedly, this is one of the reasons I was curious where this came what from. Star Wars is, right? I found no visual reference. There isn't, and I couldn't find one. I thought about us doing a new segment where I describe it to you in like a like a like a what are the police <laughs> sketch artists called? Oh, uh, uh, police sketch artists. Well, okay, that's actually I what they're called. We could do something like that. Profiling. You, you could sketch it yeah. while I described it, but. You know, that would have required planning ahead and all that. So I didn't do that. Well, okay, but <laughs> So the reason I wanted to talk about Bulbas is yes. um, not only because I think it's a neat little segment of this book where you just kind of take a minute to learn about a new species, which we don't do because it has characters giving exposition about this species. So I actually wrote it down and I'm going to kind of summarize it for you. Go for it. So... Bulba mothers always make a nest out of a dying vine that grows on this planet. It's exclusive to kind of this planet, this area. Okay. The seeds on the flowers of the vine plant themselves into the thin skin of the baby Bulbas. So you have these little baby sort of rodents that have these seeds that kind of embed themselves in their skin when they're very young, when they're first born. The vines take root in the bulbas and their bones, which are incredibly thin, have the roots wrap around them, giving their bones more density and strength. Huh. 
the plant makes this animal capable of living without the vines wrapping around their bones they would be they too weak. The strength they couldn't to... live they couldn't like you know form themselves so the plant seeds grow inside the animal giving them life and once the bulba dies new vines grow from its body and bulba mothers turn the flowers into nests which leads to the seeds from the plants being in the nests and going into the new generation of bulbas once they're born. So again, symbiosis, equally beneficial to both biological parties. Yeah, exactly. So we learn about this with uh, Force users and Metachlorians in episode one, The Phantom Menace, the idea of a symbiotic relationship, mm -hmm. right? But here we have this moment where Jin is just taking time out of her day to kind of think about this species that exists that no, yeah she finds it cute and interesting but this idea of a symbiotic relationship coming up on such a small scale and it yeah, truly is you can't have one without the other the animal can't survive without the seed and the seed can't get spread without the animal right and you got this cool like this cool thing of this plant that's like forming like almost a cast yeah. over like these little little rodents as they're born yeah I think it's just such a Star Wars thing yeah. to talk about this. I just think it's really cool. I mean, we all love aliens and different species. So there's a line specifically. I have a direct quote that I want to talk about, too, because the rest of that was kind of summarized. Yeah. So this is from Jin. There is so much about each planet that's unique, that's special, and we ignore it because we're so busy trying to throw ourselves into space. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just such a great line on multiple levels, right? So let me, one more time, Max. I yeah, know this yeah. is the first time you're hearing it. Yes. There is so much about each planet that's unique, that's special, and we ignore it because we're so busy trying to throw ourselves into space. That's, uh, that has got some depth to it. Yeah. I mean, well, here's what I love about it. One, it's for those characters. It's a really interesting moment of her saying, I'm so worried about the empire. I'm so worried about us. You know, she keeps describing themselves as ants and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the family she's living with is like, well, they're not worried about us. We're just these tiny little beings, right? We're not big enough for them to worry about. And she, and her point of view is the empire doesn't care what's under their boot. doesn't matter if you're small or large, they're still going to step on you anyway. Right. And so it's her taking this moment as she's starting to find family and comfort um, you know, because she was radicalized from a young age to be a child soldier. So here she is in her later teenage years, you know, trying to become a little bit more normal and taking this time to reflect on this tiny little inconsequential animal that is such a neat idea and important to the to the to the thriving nature of this ecosystem that it lives in. And, and it really sums up her in a lot of ways because she's kind of been dropped off by Saw because he's got to go to a new campaign and can't take her with her or doesn't want to. And she's been sort of just left behind. And Saw's mind, mindset is he can never enjoy the current battle. He's always on the next one. Yeah. Right. Because he's he's in his mind in his forever war. Yeah. Um, um, I won't give too many spoilers away for the novel, but it makes... Jin as a character and what she's gone through, it makes so much more sense where we meet her later. Uh, and then also it makes Saw such an interesting character because throughout the book, it takes place over like 10 years or something. Yeah. We see him slowly losing his mind. How do we get from like this military leader to 
Borgallet will know the truth. Yeah, like, yeah. How the, do we the liberator of Onderon too? Yeah, and so it really is a great, great novelization. And as someone who Rogue One is a movie that I struggle with personally for the simple fact that I just feel the characters are weakest in it compared to any other Star Wars movie. Well, this I, is a great way to take well, two out of three of the kind of the big ones. They're underdeveloped and, uh, and books like know. this help fix yeah. that problem. And the reason they're underdeveloped, to be totally fair, is because Rogue One is about a plot. It's not about yes. characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would argue that every other Star Wars movie is about characters first, plot second. Maybe A New Hope kind of balance you know balances it better than any of the other ones but like empire is well, a movie about characters and that's why most people you know you talk about like it's chirut and it's uh k2so and characters like that that are the ones that really stick with you from rogue one because they're the ones that can be easily just digested yes they're very archetypical yes exactly like i find personally from rogue one i mean now i'm really getting more into Jin because of this book but yeah. i find Bodhi rook to be the most interesting character because he's an imperial defector he's just trying to do what he believes is right he's carrying this important message from galen and so like we have this information about him mm-hmm. and we kind of see him as this broken person uh and so, like, to me, he was the character that was much interesting just because we got the most about him. Yeah. But I love this ancillary material that is letting us learn more about Jin and more about Saw. And eventually we're going to have a whole show about Cassian. And I'm really hoping that, like, now that I finish this book, I can't wait to go back and rewatch Rogue One again. Because I just feel like when Jin is just standing there with this kind of blank, expressionless look on her face, I'm going to understand that, like, no, it's because she was almost killed from an orbital bombardment when Saw abandoned her. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, it's these things that make the story so much well, more interesting. I think the best example of this for people who, who aren't coming from the same place we are is if you've ever watched the Clone Wars, Anakin Skywalker, as played by Hayden Christensen, is a very different person to you because every yeah. quiet pause, every yeah. poorly uh, directed stare that he has or quiet moment or weird tonal shift makes sense when you spend six seasons with this guy and getting to flesh out every reason he is what he is. And yes, it's working backwards. It's trying to fix a, a by direction, I think more than acting thinner performance. We're getting the same thing. Like Jin Urso is going to feel better to you because Mm -hmm. instead of just seeing, Oh, well this is what they could cut together with the clips they had as they rewrote the tone of that movie four times in the editing room. Yeah. You're going to read, no, no, we have gone backwards as com- as a community and we have set up Jin that all of these traits aren't weird happenstance of the messy nature of making films. No, no, no. She's this way because of. Yes. And I yes. love that. That's We're seeing great the about final stars. act of her life on film. Yes. And unfortunately, we don't get to see all of her transformational experiences the things that made her and while that's unfortunate to me as someone who comes to star wars first for character and maybe third or fourth for plot Mm -hmm. um i can understand why other people feel differently and that's totally cool yeah so if you are one of those people who loved rogue one read this book it makes Jin an infinitely better character it makes saw an infinitely better character it gives you some insight into how the rebellion uh went from a bunch of individual cells to an alliance you know, yeah. it gives you a lot of great world building and information. It gives you a lot of great species. And I it think- gives you the ball buzz. Yes. Right? It gives you ball buzz. So I highly recommend it. And if you didn't like Rogue One, I recommend it even more because boy, does it make Jin a better character. Like, 
infinitely. And if you have fan art of the Bulba, if you want to start committing, like, what does it look like and get that into the Wikipedia, I bless you. Yes, please. Please, let's get some Bulba. Uh, let's get some Bulba action going. All right. Well, I think with that, we'll move on to another topic. Yeah, Mac, a big one. Oh, it might be the biggest one for me. The entire planet is one big city. There's Chancellor Valorum's shuttle. And look over there. Senator Palpatine is waiting for us. Coruscant is from the Latin. It means glistening. And it's the name that Timothy Zahn chose to give a name to the, at the time, unnamed center capital world of the galaxy far, far away. In the original script for, um, or early drafts of Return of the Jedi, it was Had Abaddon, um, but that never actually got to print. And when Timothy Zahn said, well, we need to go to this imperial city, this republic city, this this ecumenopolis an entire planet completely encrusted in a globally spanning city and ross i gotta tell you it unabashedly unironically unsarcastically is my favorite character in all of star wars it's got a trillion people so it's got enough life to be a character by far oh yeah uh the thing I love about Coruscant, because I'm just going to say this early, because I know how much you love it, and I'm just going to let you talk then, uh, <laughs> is, one, it sets the scene for how different the prequels are going to be from the original trilogy. Yes. When we get to Coruscant, we see bright and shiny and new and flashy. Yes, we've seen flashes of it on Naboo and from our Jedi Knights that we've met, but when we get there in episode one, and then especially when we spend time there in episode two, it makes... Star Wars feel bigger than it ever had before, I think. Yeah. And it also, one thing I love about it is we revisit it in every prequel film. We go there in all three. Yep. And it gives it like a home base. I mean, it's the home of the Jedi. It's the home of the Republic Senate. It's the home of what is eventually the Empire. Yeah. Right? It has so much that happens on it. It has Dexter Jetster. It has <laughs> everything you could imagine that you'd want takes place here and now we've seen it in clone wars and we've seen it in novels and of course it was in legends a ton and this planet is so i don't want to say unique to star wars so integral to star wars so important to what it has become now Mm -hmm. compared to what it was say in 1983 i think yeah it set the stage for we've only seen this guerrilla group of warriors and what they use. There's more to the universe than them. Right. And Coruscant, I think, says that and hammers that point home. Yeah. Because um, so my familiarity with Coruscant starts with Republic City, which is what it's called during the old, old Republic. Knights of the Old Republic goes there. And it's the first time my little kid brain ever had the idea of an Amecupopolis, the idea of a entire planet being New York City, that an entire city would just 
grow and sprawl so much it wraps around and covers the entire surface and that just lit a fire in my little kid brain of like how many people lived there how what would that look like and then they're talking about that it's like these slabs of permacrete just stacked on top of each Mm -hmm. other so layers on layers it's infinitely deep and at the bottom is like these subterranean dungeons that's like the worst basement you could possibly imagine you know you would think they'd have a sinkhole problem um, with all of that weight and all those layers. Well, just to remind you, one of the things that came out in early guides, like the guidebook stuff, is they kind of tell you how deep the planet is by uh, originally, uh, I think it's Monument Square, which we see, mm-hmm. the first time we see it in film is at the end of special edition of Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. It's in the um, the celebration you know, wrap up scenes. Quick shout out uh, in Aftermath. There's that uh, little uh, excerpt from uh, Chuck Wendig's book. Totally. Yep. Uh, where they're pulling down the Palpatine statue in Monument Square. Which was from uh, the, the DVD awesome. release is kind of implying that because yeah. they have the statue there. And that's that is a totally you live through the second Iraq war kind of image. Because <laughs> it's totally the Saddam Hussein being pulled down by a pickup truck, except it's a swoop in the Palpatine. Yes. Uh, anyway, please continue. But you have Monument Square. And one of the things that makes Monument Square one of the most important parks in all of the planet is it has a small pyramid-shaped monument at its center, which is the sculpted top of the once tallest mountain on the planet. And that it still was so majestically tall that even after Coruscant has been built up, you could still see a little part of it. Wow. I didn't know any of that. Which is just like mind-blowing. Where is that from? Um, It was, uh, I'm pretty sure it was in an original guide. I think it was maybe the Guide to Planets. Oh, wow. um, Was where they they talked about that. Because when that was written in, you know, 1998, 1999, all we had for the visual of Coruscant was the... Timothy Zahn's um, Thrawn trilogy yeah. comic books. Yeah. And we had um, that one little shot. Yeah. Wherever else we had, anytime we had gone there in Legends and in, in the novels is basically what we had seen, essentially. Yeah, because right? it got talked about a lot. Because, I mean, it's it came in the new canon that kicked off with Hair to the Empire. Mm-hmm. And that just sort of became like, oh, okay, good. We have a name for the capital world. Because before that, there was thrown things about Imperial Center was usually what it was referred to. Because we knew during the Empire, they talked about it like a resource, not a place. Yeah. Right? Um, and over time, it's gotten tons of names. Like I said, the Knights of the Old Republic series that came after that started calling it Republic City. So if it was Imperial Center, then it was obviously the Republic Center, too. Um, they had names like Triple Zero is what it was called during the Clone Wars by the military because it's at the center of every galactic map by X, Y, and Z coordinates. Um, you had all kinds of weird references in Legend to the fact that uh, it has a sun that's particularly far away from it. Proving once again that its entire ecosystem is artificial. You know, mm-hmm. the planet's atmosphere would have fallen off of it if it didn't have weather control systems because of, again, how insanely deep it is. Because it's probably a planet that's about twice the size of Earth now, but started at Earth size and was just built up yeah, into that. Yeah. Uh, it has four moons, uh, which ironically, I want to say that three of them are canon again. Because <laughs> one of them has become canon, which is uh, Syntax 3, which implies if there's a Syntax 3, there's at least Syntax 1 and 2. <laughs> Maybe not 4, but 
it's it's weird. Okay, where is that from? Um, that is from one of the comic books. I think it's from uh, not Poe Dameron. I think it's. Uh, if you would ask me this that's morning, okay. I would remember the reference. No, that's interesting. I'm curious. That's cool. Oh, okay. Doctor Afra. It's from one. Oh, of the it's doc- an Afra. Okay. It's one from the Afra books. Gotcha. Um, because she mentions someone came from Syntax Three. Okay. Um. And it's just a fascinating planet. But rather than it just is. gushing about it completely and going into Legends territory more than I already have, <laughs> let's just talk about what we see. So we saw oh, Monument yeah. Square and we saw what we imagined was the Imperial Palace. And for most of our lives was the Imperial Palace in the background of yeah. that in uh, uh, Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Eventually, that is not. We actually don't know what that building is. It may just be the central government building for the executive branch. Yeah. We're not sure because in new canon, (laughs) um, the Jedi Temple is corrupted and occupied by Palpatine and becomes the Imperial Residence, the Imperial Palace, which is a million times more gushy and great as far as storytelling go that Palpatine would literally go into the grand cathedral Mm -hmm. of the Jedi and make it his house. Well, when put his dark Sith artifacts underneath of it. And yeah, when you're destroying the Roman empire, right? You take their temples and their palace for your own. Yeah. And that's what this is, right? It's it's great. The Jedi (laughs) temple speaking of is awesome. And I, we see a lot of it in clone wars. We see it obviously in episodes two and three, a good bit. And in one, we see a little bit of it as well. Um, but what a great, what a great, great building. There's that awesome room where you've got the Jedi High Council in their, mm-hmm. in their uh, different chairs uh, shaped to their own bodies. You've got, you know, Padawan training rooms and you've got uh, meditation chambers and you've got uh, quarters that we see in the Clone Wars. And just and they talk about it, it is a while we see it mostly as a facility, right? We yeah. see the library, we see the meeting rooms, oh, we yeah, see the, the training library. rooms. Yeah, it's a temple. It was built on a site that is holy to the Jedi. It's not just where they encamped on this planet. And they have been there for about as long as the Republic has been there. Which is insane to think that, like, again, that building, like, a third to more of it is underneath the street level that Mm -hmm, we see. mm -hmm. And we get to see a lot of that building. We get to see, we don't see the other towers. There's four towers that are where the other councils meet. And then we see the high tower in the center, which is the you know, the Jedi high council seat. Um, but we also get to see it at the ground level in episode three, when the 501st march into it. And yes. we see when Bail Organa stops by and we see one of the landing platforms, we, we get a really good sense of the space mm-hmm, and that giant mm-hmm, meeting mm-hmm. hall in the middle. And um, what I love about Coruscant is it is a designed place. Yes. Um, I mean, the reason we got the Return of the Jedi sequence is because they'd already finished the artwork and were building the models and building the CG for episode one at that point. So it's so cohesive the way it looks. This Art Nouveau, Art Deco styled, imagined ideal city stuff. I mean, they're taking from like Renaissance art of the ideal city with lots of curves and unnecessary arches and embellishments that are representative of a city that can spend the time on less functional buildings and less functional architecture because they are 
perfect. They're in a beautiful world where they can spend that kind of time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you even see that extend to when we start seeing other parts of the city, right? You see that elegance. You see like these beautiful, thin, you know, uh, statues in front of the Senate building. We see the beautiful dome that is the Senate. Yeah. Um, we see all the curved the, platforms inside the Senate. Uh, the, yeah, the inner, the inner chamber of the Senate itself with its vast hall and all of those hover mm -hmm. pods is still beautiful like <laughs> absolutely amazing and the way the chancellor's pod rises up from the center yep. through that awesome floor trap door um we see the opera house where we see squid lake yep uh and that's beautiful it's got that nice outdoor landing pad all of that lush red carpet um we see dexter's diner i say over in coco town we see a more working class version yeah. of all this and i love that you fact you have the same plates that all the cities built on these street levels yeah and then like there's two like skyscrapers and right between them is this little just <laughs> plunked in it's a 1950s like airfoil diner that's just yep. been like smoothed out to coruscant yep. curves yep so great oh it is it's such a great little i mean it's a reminder that not everybody lives the same life Right. Not, you know, there are people who are just have their day jobs in this universe. Yep. There are people who are just trying to get by. And I think episode two does a really good job of reminding you of that. Uh, what else do we see? We see the uh, the club in episode two as well, right? So the again, seeing a little bit more of, again, off-center. This isn't necessarily working class. I feel this is where the yuppies live. Is it, <laughs> uh, is it Uscro Town? Yeah, it's U-S-C-R-U. Okay, um, I'm going to take your word on it. I'm going to say that. Uh, <laughs> but that is the like neon glitzy um, part of town we see in episode two. It's also referenced in the Clone Wars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it kind of represents more of like uh, a little bit, a little bit of the energy of like a Times Square or um, uh, Shibuya in Tokyo. A little bit more of a shopping entertainment district. There's lots of advertising. There's yeah. lots of signage. There's lots of neon colors. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole part of the town feels like a night spot. Yes. Um, and we get to see like a a, a bar, which the the, the outrider a cantina. The, I'm sorry, Outlander. The, out, the Outlander. Outlander. Yeah. What was to say the Outlander. Um does not feel like a cantina like we've seen before. It's not a local watering hole. This is like a sports bar. <laughs> yeah, a Dave and Buster's. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Buffalo Wild Wings of Star Wars. And you even see whatever space football and racing and stuff is mm -hmm, going on there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's obviously a classy enough joint. I mean, Anthony Daniels hangs out there. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, sure, there's some scum that is selling some death sticks yeah. around. But, like, yeah, in general. You get that everywhere you go. You get a little death stick. But, again, that even, yeah. even Evan Scavaggio, the, the death stick salesman, mm -hmm. feels like the kind of guy who'd be pushing cocaine at like a glitzy nightclub in 1980s Los Angeles. It doesn't feel yes. grim and gritty and dirty. I agree. We see that later. We see that in the Clone Wars. We see where the bounty hunter hunters hang out on the lower levels. And, and as you go yeah. down the floors. Wow. 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 What about, uh, what about the droid, the droid spa that we see in Clone Wars? Yes. Uh, I checked. It doesn't have a better name. It's just Coruscant droid spa. Uh, there's an episode there's where, one. uh, R2 and, uh, 3PO are out after some Jogan fruit because Padme is <laughs> yes. hosting a dinner and they need this specific type of fruit for this cake. 
and uh, Anakin is worried 3PO is going to mess it up. And of course, R2 is there to keep an eye on him. Well, bottom line, they get captured by a bounty hunter because they have information they're trying to get, blah, 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 blah. But anyway, we see a droid spa on Coruscant, which is the whole point of that story. Uh, but, that's but I fun. love that story is just showing you just how kind of wild this town is yeah, and how how yeah. how like 1970s New York you're mm-hmm. just a few blind turns away from ending up in the bad part of town. Because <laughs> um, like you said, we see it was originally supposed to be the centerpiece of a video game named after it. But we see it enter canon in later episodes of The Clone Wars with like um, Barris Offrey and stuff like dealing with 1313, which yeah. is considered to be the the hell's kitchen of Coruscant the mm-hmm. worst of the worst like the cops don't even go there they just let it be <laughs> yeah which makes you wonder what's on the other 1312 levels below it well i think the impression of that is the further you go down yeah. the less humans you find yeah they eventually you get into like what uh tarsus another amecopolis had in the Knights of the Republic game where when you get to the very bottom, the foundation of this planet city, you're in like where there are rack ghouls, these subhuman golem like, Mm -hmm. you know, golem from Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. albino skin hanging off the, you know, subhumans. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, you got to figure there's probably no light when you get far enough down in Coruscant. It's got to be cold to a certain extent. I mean, as you said, there's artificial climate control, but well, I wonder. And again, they're they're taking something that we use a lot more in the Imperial stories about Coruscant, but they're they're doing the thing of literally <laughs> the rich live in the highest towers mm-hmm, or on mm-hmm. floating platforms or floating yeah. islands of the city. And the middle class lives at the street level or slightly below it. Yeah. And the dregs live <clears throat> in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think you're absolutely right. And we see that not every part of Coruscant is pleasant. Um, in episode two, we end up at the works, the industrial section of town. We float through it during the Coruscant chase, but we primarily see it as this is a place that is almost completely automated. There's like no beings around on this part of the planet. And it's where Tyrannus meets Sidious after the events of episode two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we see much more still elegant, still kind of beautiful in its own way but we see more rust colors we see more big blocky you know metal structures we see factories and power plants and storage and um gears and more industrial age iconography yeah yeah um which is again showing that this planet you know we just talked last segment about like you know uh the the comment of like we're so busy looking to the stars we don't go deep on yeah. individual planets and part of that is because every planet in star wars is coming from the flash gordon model of it has a terrain it's the ice planet the forest planet yeah. the ocean planet the city planet um and i'm so glad that lucas thought it was so important to talk about this place that all the events of the story flow through that we really do get the time to see a lot of different parts of it. We do get the time to like flesh it out as a place. Um, and in Canon, which is the most exciting part, because there's tons of stuff like I love. There's a series of books called Coruscant Knights, which are written like hard boiled detective fiction about a, you know, Jedi Padawan who's trying to hide out in the lower parts of the city. Um, 
And I love that kind of stuff. But I like that in real canon, we're getting level 1313. I, I figure that if the Mandalorian goes on long enough, <laughs> that phrase will come up. They might go there, mm-hmm. like, if the budget allows. Yeah. Um, and I just, I absolutely, as you can tell, adore it. And it's such a great also example of storytelling through non-human characters. So I say that Coruscant's my favorite character. And I believe that ever since I took a script writing course where they started telling me about like doing a script analysis of Star Wars and the Galactic Empire is a character. And I'm like, but it's a faction. It's not a character. And they're like, no, it, it is a character. You know so much about it by looking at the architecture of the Death Star, how they treat their troops. They're all numbers how the emperor is far off and away, but making these big sweeping decrees about destroying the the Senate. Like we know a lot about the world by this faction being defined by how it is Mm -hmm. and how that must mean for, you know, how that ramification, like we never see Coruscant in the original trilogy as writ, right? But we know it exists that there obviously are places like Tatooine, which the bright center of the universe Coruscant. <laughs> or the star that's farthest from. This is the star farthest from. Yeah. You know, this the, This is the binary suns of, of Tatooine. These are not the glycerine glow of Coruscant Prime, the star yeah. of Coruscant. No, this is so far <laughs> away. And we've always had a cultural thing in Star Wars, much like no one can tell me exactly how we knew Obi-Wan fought Anakin in a volcano, but we all instinctively knew it even before I could tell you where the reference came from. We all knew that there was a capital world and we all knew that it was a city and we all knew that it was part of the elitist core worlds. Yeah. No idea where that came from or how long that's been in Canon, but it's been something we've always known. And when Doug Chang and his team invented the look of Coruscant, like you mentioned at the top, they did such a good job of making a beautiful, wonderful, idealistic view of urban architecture that's going to feel like a tragedy when this becomes a war depot. And so the last place I want to talk about Star Wars in canon is the only time we really get to see Imperial Center, Imperial Coruscant, is twice and we see the brutalism the angular the 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 curves of the city of Coruscant being disposed of which is in episode three we see the um republic medical facility where darth vader's converted which comes up again in clone wars when they talk about the biochip problems in episode in season six they show this thing that sticks out like a sore thumb from everything we've seen from Coruscant's architecture up to now and that gets further pushed when we see the in, the Republic War Depot in the last episodes of season five of Clone Wars, the the end of the show, where we see big Republic banners that, you know, we just take that down, put an Imperial one up. This yeah. is Imperial. We see that we've gutted part of the city so we can land all of these, you know, um, Star Destroyers. Um, it echoes what we saw at the end of two when we see the clones being arrived and deployed from Coruscant. Mm-hmm. Like, but it feels angular. It feels like Coruscant, this beautiful curved Art Nouveau, is getting hit with a hammer and pounded <laughs> into the hard, strong angles of Death Star architecture. Mm-hmm. And um, 
like I said, I love it. And I think it's such a great way of conveying a story with a character that has no voice, but says so much. Yes. Well, Mac, I love Coruscant, but not in the way you do. <laughs> um, I, I think it's a fantastic planet. I think that it is a character on its own, but I think more than anything, it gives you what Star Wars does such a good job at, and it's the mm -hmm. prime example of it. It does two things well. It makes it feel real, but fiction. Yep. And it makes it feel like people actually live there, like yep. real life is happening. And it do, it's the embodiment of those two things, those two sort of principles of Star Wars, what makes yeah. it different from other science that fiction. lived in universe. The yeah. idea that we're focusing on these characters, but every character you just saw is running their own life, having mm -hmm. their own story, and mm -hmm. having their own interesting thing to learn about. Exactly. And I think Coruscant embodies that like nothing else in Star Wars does. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're so attached to it. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you for sharing that with me because <laughs> I did love hearing you talk about it. And it is awesome. It's beautiful. I love yeah. every time we're there in the prequels. And I'm honestly a little sad that the sequel trilogy didn't take us there because I really was I'm primarily disappointed. it was going to. And it I'm didn't. primarily disappointed only because that makes it so it's not in all the trilogies. Yeah. Um, and I feel that after Halcyon Prime blows up, I figure like, well, there was already a planet that seemed to be pretty good. It stood for a couple millennia as the center of the galaxy. <laughs> we'll go back there. I guess it's a good thing Coruscant didn't get blown up by Starkiller Base. Right? Oh, I would have. You would have been. I would have been Rogue One about episode seven if they blew up my favorite character. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. All right. Well, Mac, I, I appreciate you sharing all that with me. I'm so happy we finally got about 26 episodes in to talk about Coruscant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thank you for well, holding off you. as long as you did. Thank you for letting me gush. And, and let us know in social media if you enjoyed this or hated this. Cause, yeah, Star Wars all in on everything. Yeah, because I feel that this was a very indulgent topic for me. So I hope you enjoyed uh, and, and hopefully learned some things about the planet, uh, you know, about triple zero. You never knew. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, ready to wrap this thing? Let's do it. Star Wars is for everyone. Every day, we have the ability and opportunity to create a more accepting world by actively coming together and living inclusively. Whether it's the galaxy far, far away or right here at home, there's always a chance to do even small things to include other people, let them know that they're loved. Just regardless of the differences we have between us, what makes us in common is far more important. Yeah, Star Wars loves and accepts all, and it's always been about that. And here we are in 2020, Star Wars more inclusive than ever. I can't tell you how many different people from different walks of life, different ability levels, different races, creeds, genders, that were all together at Star Wars Celebration to celebrate the things we love. Sometimes it feels like you're fighting against the Empire when you're trying to champion what's right. But remember, it takes all of us to fight an Empire. So join us and everyone else in the galaxy and learn how you can come together at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council.
All right, and another episode of Star Wars All In comes in for a landing. We're locking it down on the docking bay. Uh, kind of a fun, weird one. We kind of danced around a lot of weird stuff. We talked about a video game, yep. we talked about toys, and we talked about a ship. Uh, hey, Mac, why not just throw it all at the wall and see what we have fun talking about, right? That is the yeah. whole point of Star Wars All In, is it not? To just talk about really whatever we want for an indetermined amount of time. And I will say I am happy we are finally sort of broaching into the topic of video games because, to me, that's a huge part of my developmental yeah, Star yeah. Wars growth. Uh, I think we talked about the only thing that will be detrimental to us covering video games swiftly is you have a very reasonable position of like, yeah, no, we totally talked about it. Let me play it again. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, well, when we get to like Star Wars, like, there's a few games you like if you want to if we want to talk about Star Wars Force Commander, I, I don't think there's any way to play it on a modern computer. So I guess we're just not going to talk about that one. That's okay. No one remembers well, that one. we'll start with the ones we can play. I've got Racer Revenge ready to roll. I've yeah. got Bounty Hunter upstairs. Uh, what else can we just turn on and play? Well, we're going to get... So we, we, I, I think we have something cooking in the background. We're going to probably eventually do a Shadows of the Empire-like yes. special. Yes. And one thing we'll definitely be talking about is the, those ships that float like a uh, block of wood and uh, yes. and about wampas and a whole bunch of other things we've already mentioned. So It's a great time to be a Star Wars fan. Plenty of Star Wars games past, plenty more to come, I feel. And, and, and I will say, Star Wars is special in the sense that, like, the vast majority of its catalog is able to be acquired and played these days. Like, even Shadows of the Empire you can buy for a modern computer. Like, that's wild. Yeah, I bought uh, I bought the Shadows of the Empire novel, so I'm ready to reread it and uh, do our special. So we'll get working on that. Oh, it's going to be fun. Yeah. It's gonna be, why, yeah. Didn't they have a, why didn't they have an Unleashed figure of Shizor? That would have been... I guess that's maybe a little bit after that time. but Yeah, they were really going yeah. more prequel. Yeah. All the odd ones were prequel characters at that point, yeah, weren't that's they? that's true. Well, yeah. um, all the same, it's been a blast. and hey, we uh, hope you enjoyed. Yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, well, I'm Mac. And I'm Ross. And until we see you next Wednesday. Hey, may that force be with you. This production is not endorsed by any other property and is the sole responsibility of Mac Purvis III, Ross Greco, and those involved in its production. It is meant for entertainment purposes only. Other than content provided by this production's providers, all music, music clips, sound bites, rights are reserved, and their respective owners have not endorsed any aspect of this show. Copyright 2020.